Tuesday, November 7th. Welcome on into Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Mary Cummings-Jordan. And today for Avi Wolfman-Arendt on this Election Day. Cherry, it is a busy day. And uh, to our listeners, have you made it to the polls yet? Maybe you voted by mail. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the big races today. And we'll check in with WHYY's Kristen Mossbrucker-Garzer, who is out and about in Philadelphia talking with voters. Yeah, Mary, so nice to be with you today. You too, Cherry. Did you take advantage of that extra hour of sleep on Sunday? I tried. But sadly, my body would not cooperate. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that. (laughs) About our circadian rhythms and our body cooperating or not. We've got University of Pennsylvania sleep expert Eileen Rosen standing by to tell us about what the end of daylight saving time does to our bodies. We'll also ask her about changing our sleep habits and if night owls can become early birds. And if you have a good morning or evening routine, we we want your tips. Yeah. So email us, studio2 at whyy.org, or you can call 888-477-9499. I want to hear what people, you know, say about getting up early. I'll always take sleep advice. I will, too. (laughs) Also, the Philadelphia Zoo has a brand new president and CEO. Joelle Mogerman is coming into the studio to tell us a little bit about herself, her love for animals, and her vision for the nation's first Sue, but first cherry oh yeah looking forward to that first we got to talk about election day and we have some very important races in our region and our whyy reporters they're spread out they're taking it all in the big statewide races we're going to start in pennsylvania three statewide judicial seats including one on the supreme court that's being called the most expensive state supreme court race in Pennsylvania to date. We also have in Philadelphia city council seats hang in the balance, including five at-large seats with the Working Families Party hoping to edge out Republicans in that at-large race for council. And of course, our race for mayor, Mary. I mean, Democrat Sherelle Parker versus Republican David O. And it's, you know, it's expected that uh, Parker will beat Republican uh, opponent David O because Philly is a seven to one Democratic town. But of course, the votes haven't been tabulated yet. And we're going to hear all about it at the end of the day. WHYY is doing a live uh, special tonight at 10 o'clock with Tom McDonald. Look at all the results. Um, But O did ring. He ran a big campaign in Philadelphia. He is a moderate. He might do a little bit better than expected, which could affect GOP voter turnout mm-hmm. in next year's election. And Cherry, that's one of the things we're watching. That is absolutely right. And we need to check in on turnout because folks have been voting. The polls opened bright and early this morning. And we have WHYY business reporter Kristen Mossberger Garza. She's on election day duty today and she's been making her rounds at the polls in Philly. How you doing? And what is turnout looking like, Kristen? Well, thanks for having me, y'all. I've been up uh, since uh, the moon was out, and uh, I'm here at the um, uh, South Jazz Club, where a lot of politicos are hobnobbing right now. Uh, But this morning, I was up and early in Mount Airy in the northwest, uh, talking to voters. I I talked to um, one gentleman and his family. He brought his uh, children out to the polls, and he said what was on his mind was education. Uh, He said that that's why he came out. He wants the next mayor and city council to focus on education in Philadelphia. Um, And then some folks in uh, West Oak Lane, where Sherelle Parker cast her vote, Mm. um, I, I spoke with a woman who said she wants 
the next administration, and she was inspired to actually come out to vote uh, because of gun violence. She wants to see more uh, gun control uh, here. She wants the kids in particular to put the guns down is what she told me. Uh, And then I stopped in Kensington, um, and I spoke with a woman there who voted, and, you know, she's a mother. And she says, you know, she grew up in Kensington and she wants to be able to take her daughter to school the same route that she did. She still lives in the neighborhood and she doesn't feel safe doing that. Her daughter is a teenager and she wants the the next leaders of of, of the city of Philadelphia to really tackle the opioid um, issue in Kensington. Yeah. And Kristen, I mean, folks are clearly very motivated. But what does turnout look like? Yeah, so a turnout uh, is slow but steady. Okay. Um, I, I would say, you know, there was no lines, nothing like that. Um, there were still the sort of really dedicated voters, um, but certainly nothing you would see in a presidential year. Okay. Kristen Mossbrucker-Garzer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, thank Kristen. You. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, um, election turnout on mayoral years, I mean— it's not a general election, you know, a presidential election. So it tends to be lower than in presidential elections. But we'll see. I mean, 2019, um, there were only 27 percent of the vote that turned out on the last you know, mayoral election. So we'll see. Um, but, you know, there there's been a lot of talk about this race. It would be historic if Sherelle Parker wins first black woman mayor. If David O, who has a very, you know, very slim chance, he would be the first Asian American uh, to be mayor of the city of Philadelphia. So a lot of motivation there. And a lot to talk about as this story unfolds. In New Jersey, Cherry, there's there is some talk that the GOP could retake control of the legislature. Mm. All the legislative seats are up for grabs this year. I'm guessing it's not likely because Democrats still have a, a pretty wide margin in both the state Senate and Assembly. But again remains to be seen. Um, you might have talked about this before. The one the one district that's really interesting in our area is the third district in Gloucester County, in mm-hmm. which um, Republican uh, former truck driver, I guess, Ed Durr, uh, toppled the Democratic Senate president a few years ago, Steve Sweeney, which is a monumental upset. And now Durr is being challenged by Democrat John Berzicelli, who was ousted from the Assembly. He had been an assistant speaker. So a little bit of political intrigue there, a little bit of a soap opera happening in New Jersey. But yeah, uh, yeah. not a lot going on in Delaware, if you wondered. <laughs> and so but you can follow up to dates throughout the day um, and our election night coverage at WHYY.org slash election. And also, of course, tune in right here at 10 o'clock tonight. And so um, going down, folks are sort of shifting right now. We're going to shift to some sunnier weather. Mm -hmm. People are on the move. Yeah. A lot of people apparently are moving, you know, from both Pennsylvania and New Jersey south to Florida. And, you know, that's nothing new. We were talking Mm -hmm. about this off mic, you know, Mm -hmm. earlier that, you know, people go to Florida. They like the weather, especially in the winter, it's a little gentler. It it's is. A little, it's easier. It's nice to Better be for with the a lot of sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> you don't deal with the snow and ice. But some of the reasons, um, according to U.S. Census data, you know, the weather played a part, but also housing is more affordable and politics. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, Florida has always been kind of viewed as a swing state in, mm-hmm. in some of the big elections, the presidential elections. But the GOP has been gaining a little bit of ground. I think the last... Uh, the last bit of information I saw was that it's 51% Republican, but there's still a lot of Democrats there. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah. I, I saw that we've lost people in Pennsylvania. 
Um, also, New Jersey, um, you know, so it, it was very interesting. People, a net gain of over 600,000 people moved to Florida between 2020 and 2022. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of folks. Yeah. And the only state in our region that had a net gain over the past couple of years, Delaware, they gained about 27,000 folks, including myself. So okay. folks moving... Um, <laughs> Move into Delaware, but twenty thousand Pennsylvanians moved down to Florida. Would you can't think of that. going to Florida? Um, no, I like the seasons. Yeah, me yeah, too. I like the seasons. Well, I like a real winter. Yeah. Um, something else I like, uh, Mary, is the train. Um, yeah. from DC, I used to went to college in Boston. Amtrak. Uh, Amtrak was my chosen method of travel. Well, President Joe Biden announced a multi-billion-dollar investment aimed at rejuvenating. Amtrak's Northeast Corridor. The route runs, as I mentioned, from Boston to D.C. It's the busiest rail corridor in the U.S. and one of the busiest in the world. The investment is $16 billion, Mary. It will mean faster trains, fewer delays, and improved infrastructure. It'll also work on improving bridges and tunnels that have aged poorly. President Biden, of course, from Delaware, used to take the the Amtrak back and forth to Washington. My mom, who came to visit over the weekend, she took the Amtrak, and I will tell you, they really need the work because there was like a two-hour delay. She sat on the tracks. Really? Because there was a track issue. Yeah. yeah. So this money is is, is definitely needed. Yeah. Great way to get cars off the highway, too, to relieve congestion. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big mass transit fan. You, you know, you don't have to convince me about that. That's great. Yes, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So um, why don't we turn to a completely different uh, subject? Mm-hmm. Aging oh, seems to be It's happening vogue. every day. <laughs> It's happening it every day. It happens to all of us. You can't get away from it. Um, but it seems to be in vogue now, Cherry, at least in some mm. states. Um, Style Seat, which is an online destination for beauty and wellness professionals and clients, surveyed 2,000 Americans on their perceptions about getting older. And they found in some corners of America, people are not just accepting but embracing the journey Ooh, into in. their later, leaning in into their later years. Almost half of Pennsylvanians embrace gray hair, but we like to call it silver. Those of us who have dabbled, dabbled, I think silver just has a little more cachet. I I kind of like it. Yeah, but you know what? I've always had a thing for a salt and pepper beard. You know, like I'm not, <laughs> that's probably TMI, but I'm, I'm just no. That's okay. You, that's the truth. That's okay. And that that has been my entire life. I always was like, oh, I like the little yeah. beard. Um, but I I see now women are leaning in too, and I've also seen younger people sort of dyeing their hair gray. I've seen that too. They're taking their their hair with no gray, turning it gray, and it looks really cool. It and does. They're just leaning in. It yeah. does. But they're leaning in, but they look a little different than <laughs> people of a certain age. With the, I, that's just my personal opinion yes. because I've seen that and I think they look fabulous. But yeah. it's a different look than somebody who it might is. be a little bit older. And, and a true confession this morning, um, I had a gray hair that was just looking like a unicorn horn that just would not lay down. I plucked okay. that bad boy. I plucked it. You know, that is, yeah. If, yeah. if it's bugging you, pluck it. Pluck it. You I'm know? not going to keep doing that though because it could become a problem you'll later on, but maybe one day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm betwixt in between myself. I've, I've let my silver come out, but then last year, somebody took an, an outdoor picture of me, and I went, <laughs> "Who is that?" So I'm back to glaze for You're the back moment. Back to glaze. Yeah. It looks good though. It oh, looks okay. good. Thank you, Jerry. So um, daylight saving time ended yeah. Sunday, yes, and we did. all turned our clocks back and got an extra hour of sleep. Mary, you didn't really remember. You didn't use it for sleep. Right? I woke up. I woke up. I couldn't get back to sleep. My body wouldn't let me. Yeah. So well, WHYY's Matt Gillum. 
didn't go get sleep <laughs> during that time. He was up very early to investigate how the clock on the face of City Hall's tower gets turned back. It's just a few minutes before 3 a.m. on Sunday, but the clock tower at City Hall still says it's almost 4. I'm meeting Greg Ginter. I usually set my alarm for 2 for the first 15 minutes. I hate every minute of it. Then once I'm driving in, it's fun, I guess. The early wake-up call when the time changes is part of Ginter's job as the superintendent of City Hall. The Northeast Philly native reckons he's reset the clock for a couple of years now. We go inside the building and take the first of two elevators. It's your standard run-of-the-mill elevator, but the second ride, the one up to the tower, is in a cramped conveyance that's basically full when three people are inside. Given that the clock started telling time on December 31st, 1898, and City Hall was completed in 1901, the cavernous and quiet space inside the device is striking. There are no huge weights, no dangling chains, no chimes, and no ticking. The soft whirring and squealing of 70-plus-year-old electric motors is the only sound. They're powering four tiny timepieces, one for each side, and it's those that Ginter sets. And then we just power it off, and we just wind it back. This is just another gear to the, all the gears up. Now we're just turning the hands backwards. As you turn this little wheel on what is essentially a mantle size clock, this is actually changing the face? This is changing the face on the outside of the building. So somebody looking up right now is having a real trip? Yes. While this is the sound of turning back time to many... If I could turn back time If I could find a way At City Hall, it's more of a cranking noise. This is the sound of turning back time. After making his way around the tower and resetting each side, Ginter dryly declares, I guess the excitement's over. <laughs> the job done, Philly's clock guy wonders how many people still use the timepiece that can boast bigger faces than Big Ben. Not many people look up anymore. They're all on their face in their, in their phone. Once the sun is up and people are milling around the City Hall Plaza, you can't help but notice how many are navigating the hustle and bustle face down. Attorney William Banton isn't strolling device in hand, but he says he's not inclined to look up. I have my iPhone right here in my pocket, and it's so much simpler for me to just pull it out. I never even think about looking at the clock. However, retired teacher Delia Turner reliably consults it. Yeah, I do. When I'm walking up Broad Street looking to see whether I should check for a bus. As she passes through Center City, Megan Gentile says she too is on team clock. I run down here all the time, so I use it. I never use my phone when I'm out. That's what I use. Regardless of if you're a purist who looks up to get the time or you're more inclined to reach in your pocket, the important thing is accuracy. That's what Greg Ginter is going for when he manually turns the dials to synchronize Philly's towering timepiece with, wait for it. The good old iPhone. Looking up or looking down, you're hopefully looking at the same time. For Studio 2, I'm Matt Gillum. Nice job, Matt Gillum. He managed to work some share in there. (laughs) He did. I love that music. I have to say, I can't, I didn't really, I've never really looked up at the clock on City Hall. I feel bad about that. Now I will. I haven't either. And what an interesting job Mr. Ginter has. I know. I know. Turning back the clock. Turning back time. I don't, don't, I'm I'm not going to sing like Cher. I (laughs) won't do that to you guys. So um, coming up. 
Can you turn yourself into a morning person? I'm already there. I can't turn myself into a night person, I don't think. But we'll find out from our guest coming up next. We can ask her that question. Yes, we're going to be talking about how to make the most of that so-called extra hour of sleep. You can give us your sleep routine questions or comments and call us 888-477-9499. Or you can email studio2 at whyy.org. We'll be right back. This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Mary Cummings-Jordan, in for Avi Wolfman-Arendt. Many of us got an earlier start on Sunday when clocks fell back an hour, and it's no coincidence the earlier wake-up is linked to our body's circadian rhythm, the 24-hour cycle that dictates our sleepiness, appetite, and even body temperature. Yeah, and research shows that our circadian rhythm tendencies are actually genetic. So if we're hardwired to be early birds or night owls, it is possible to shift our sleep for healthier, happier habits? That's the question. Joining us now to answer it, and many more questions we have for her is Dr. Eileen Rosen. She is a sleep medicine doctor and associate professor at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Eileen Rosen, welcome to Studio Two. Hi there, thank you for having me. So um, what does moving from standard time to daylight saving time and vice versa do to our bodies, Dr. Rosen? Um, So there's been obviously a lot of discussion about this over um, the last several years. Um, you know, the, the, the movement to um, daylight saving times and back is somewhat of a historical concept, and there were uh, quite a number of reasons for it. But what uh, researchers have realized over time is that really standard time, which we're currently on now, is really the one that most matches our body's natural clock and circadian rhythm. So it's no it's no coincidence that this actually felt good <laughs> to switch back, to fall back. Most people say it feels pretty good. So let's talk about the pros and cons of these clock changes. Um, and I understand, first of all, that you're against daylight saving times and all of that. Explain what our what happens when we shift the clock forward and backward. Yeah, so. um well, the, first of all, the reason why it feels good to fall back is probably mainly because so many of us are sleep deprived. And so getting an extra hour, regardless of how you identify in terms of morning lark or night owl, um, it just feels good to have the luxury of getting a little extra sleep. But um, in general, the the idea of getting uh, more light with daylight savings at the end of the day Um, is actually counterintuitive to the mechanisms that your body needs to uh, start to be ready to go to bed. And so um, getting light exposure later in the afternoon or even into the early evening, particularly if you're a night owl, can make it very difficult uh, to fall asleep at a reasonable hour when you have to get up in the morning at 6 a.m., let's say, for work. What does the body need specifically? What do you recommend? Um, so we we recommend um, a uh, you you want the body to get cues that um, that tell uh, melatonin to increase and say it's going to be time to go to bed soon, and so really that is a reduction in light exposure three to four hours before 
you might think about going to bed or before your brain, our brains would be primed to go to bed. And so that occurs naturally when the sun starts to go down, um, maybe not at four o'clock in the afternoon, but certainly at five or six when you think about sort of the average day. So that's one thing. And then, of course, as we've evolved as a society, we have artificial sources of light in our mm -hmm. houses and not just our bedside lamps or our overhead lighting, um, but things like our phones, our TVs, um, our tablets, all of these things admit blue light. The reason why the screen color is so beautiful is because they are admitting the exact wavelength of blue light that our bodies actually interpret when they see it from the sun as the signal to either be awake when you see it or to start to think about going to sleep when you don't. And so in addition to it getting dark outside, we need to think about how to cue our brains to have it be dark on the inside. So that's why everybody says, turn off electronics, mm. or if you need to be on them for some reason, get blue light canceling glasses. So that's the light piece of it. Very, um, the, go right ahead. Go ahead. Go right ahead. Yeah, and, the, and then the other pieces are, um, certainly uh, it's a 24 seven society and we have, um, access to a lot of things that can be stimulating at night just in not only are you let's say on your phone um, looking at images but if you're um, doom scrolling and those mm. are things that are getting you wired up right yeah. or you're playing words with friends or whatever it's not just the light it's the brain activity um, that is either it could be anxiety provoking or it's just stimulating and it's um can be harder to go to bed then of course many of us fit in a workout when they get we get home from work or we eat late and both of those things are also counterintuitive to the body wanting to fall asleep really so no working out late in the day yeah so there is um a lot of data that um indicates particularly if you're having trouble going to bed at a specific time um, that's required in order for you to get enough hours of sleep that you do not want to work out at least within three hours before going to bed. And the reason for that is that despite all the great cardiac and um, muscular um, effects of the exercise, we are increasing our core body temperature when mm. we exercise. And Part of the process of this, what the circadian rhythm, there's a circadian rhythm to our temperature, our core body temperature, and it drops over the course of the night. And that is where you get really good quality sleep. So if anyone's pulled an all nighter and been awake, you wonder like, why am I so cold? And the temperature yeah. hasn't changed on my thermostat. It is because your core body temperature is still getting the signal to go to bed and drop because it's, interesting. A, it's circadian influence. And as so a, when you exercise, you yeah. do that. Yes. Yeah. As a person who has done my share of all nighters, I usually end up bundling up because I am a little bit chilly. If you're just tuning in, Dr. Eileen Rosen is a sleep medicine doctor and associate professor of medicine at the Perlman School of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Do you have questions about sleep? Are you a morning person? Call us and tell us your habit you think has helped you most. And if you're not, send us your questions for our expert. Our number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. I wanted to kind of ask you about that because 
you mentioned, um, and we talked about this in the intro, circadian rhythms, they're genetic. But I used to be, I seemed like I was a night owl in my younger years, known to pull all nighters in grad school and corporate days um, and can still do it if needed, but it's going to be painful now. That said, now (laughs) I kind of wake up super early. My eyes pop open just before 5 a.m. And I'm pretty productive in those morning hours. Is there a reason for this shift? And can folks be more intentional about going from a night owl to a morning person? Uh, Yeah, it's a great question. So, yes, it is true that um, your circadian rhythm is genetically determined. And uh, I would say people will say, oh, I'm definitely a morning lark or I'm a night owl. Um, and there's even questionnaires you can do to determine that. And But most people are um, a half an hour in one direction or the other. It's There are extremes of both of those, and there are actually sleep disorders, like delayed sleep phase individuals. Uh, they can't go to bed before four in the morning. I mean, that's really delayed. But in general, it's just a half an hour on, uh, you know, in one direction or the other. And then what happens over the course of our lifespan is actually Mm -hmm. that naturally with age, our internal clocks, our circadian rhythms phase advance, meaning we tend to feel sleepy earlier and go to bed a little earlier and even if we don't see that right away because of how our lifestyle is, we can find ourselves waking up earlier. Um, And so that is just a natural process of aging. And it really starts to happen when people are not that old, quite frankly. Um, It's, you know, in in the midlife, you start to see the advancing. And then certainly people in in their senior years um, might notice it being more extreme. Whether or not you can advance your clock any faster than the aging process wants you to. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but certainly giving cues to your body to gain that half an hour in the direction you want that works with your lifestyle, either advance or delay, that certainly can be done by doing some of the things I mentioned earlier and um, uh, even a few other tricks of the trade. Eileen, uh, Cherry and I were talking about an interesting facet of moving back and forth between standard time and daylight saving time. One of our listeners, Lou, um, says, as someone with diabetes who keeps a close watch on my glucose level, the time change is a hassle because I have to shift when I take my meds. So what do you say to somebody who is on a medical regimen and and has to, you know, jockey back and forth between the um, the different times? How do they manage that? What's the best way? Uh, I, I, it it really depends on um, you have to know sort of what the baseline schedule is. And then oftentimes what I recommend is start doing it before the actual date. So just like we have recommendations for someone traveling westward or eastward um, in terms of time zones, uh, we tell them think about accommodating that shift, particularly when you're traveling east you want to start making that accommodation in small increments, 20 minutes, 30 minutes for two or three days beforehand. And then the uh, the the response on the day that it happens or the day that you travel or the day of the time change um, won't feel as dramatic to the body. Very interesting. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Dr. Eileen Rosen, sleep medicine doctor and associate professor of medicine at Perlman School of Medicine at Penn. We're all talking about the sleep pattern shift that we just experienced when we went back to standard time and fell back 
an hour um, with regard to uh, the time. If you want to comment, you can call 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Um, I wanted to sort of talk about um, the more about this whole shifting of the time. I've read a lot of books that talk about, you know, millionaires get up early, like all these reasons I used to have to psych myself out to get up earlier and earlier. You mentioned 30 minute increments. Um, If you want to set up a plan, let's say you switch shifts on your job and you now have a whole different um, wake up time or work time. What is the best way to make that transition? Or even you got kids, they're going back to school, whatever. Um, How do you sort of, what is the best way to sort of set yourself up for success without causing medical issues or other problems um, or terribly disrupting your circadian rhythm? Yes, um, it's a great question. So the first thing I want to say, just so everybody understands, is that it is much easier to what we call phase delay than it is to phase advance. So what does phase delay mean? Um, It's easier to stay up later and push yourself to stay up later to adjust your clock than it is to get up earlier. So that's why when you travel westward, you often adapt a little more quickly than when you travel eastward. That being said, the situation, and so um, we should use that science in the shift work. Um, People should be going from morning to day shift to evening shift to night shift um, depending on sort of the hours that are required and we need our leadership of of, and the people who set the schedules to understand that science so that's one piece of it Um, when you talk about things like um, uh, uh, you know it's been the summertime and now people are shifting back to school or you're someone who just realized you know, I really have to get up early because everyone is in the office early and you get a lot done um, when you have that uh, earliness. The, I tell the need to be in early. I tell people to really think about what is the ideal wake up time and start to be consistent with that every day, even though in the beginning that is going to be very hard because people may be sleep deprived or have mm-hmm. trouble going to bed earlier. But if you start with that wake up time and then you cue your body when you get up, how do you cue your body? You get exposed to light. Now, there are some subtleties about exactly when that should happen. And um, it might be easiest to talk to a provider about that. But if you're off by 30 minutes when you get exposed to light based on your circadian nadir and based on how much you are trying to shift, you could actually have the wrong effect. Hmm. But we'll we'll just say uh, for now, when you pick that wake up time, you can, let's say you wanna get up two hours earlier, maybe start with 30 minutes earlier to begin, get light exposure then, do that for a couple of days, then get up 30 minutes earlier than that, get light exposure, exercise a brisk walk outside for 15 minutes, um, we'll do the trick provided the sun has come up. We have, um, a, but oh, it, sorry about that. Go ahead. No, no. Ahead. I was going to say we have a, a question from our listener Brad who asks: I have seasonal affective disorder and get tired very early when it gets dark around four o'clock. Should I just go to bed or fight it? Yeah, it's um, uh, it's a great question. It, it's um, you know, seasonal affective disorder is complex. It's this interaction of your natural circadian rhythm, um, decrease decrease sensitivity. Or, um, of 
of the individual person's retina to light. I remember I was telling you about how the blue light is sort of the the cue. Um, and then there are genetic, factor, genetic factors and neurotransmitters involved, um, such as serotonin. And so uh, I would recommend, as opposed to going to bed at four o'clock in the afternoon, which might cause you to be up early in the morning to fight it at least until um, after the, the sun goes down and maybe even till after 6 p.m., but understand that it, it can really affect how you're, uh, when you get up, when you get up in the morning. And so getting light exposure at that time, if you're really sleepy, can, can be helpful. And also doing some exercise um, understanding that when you have seasonal affective disorder, it can be hard to feel motivated, but the the light and light therapy can be helpful. Yeah. Got to ask a question from my mom. Shout out to Mary G over here. She says, I am legally blind and I do better working in the middle of the night. Is there a reason why? Um, so uh, when, when somebody is legally blind, um, they... Uh, Believe it or not, some people who are legally blind can still actually get the signal um, of that blue wavelength of light. But if somebody finds that they do fine during the night, it's because their their clock is actually running on its free time. So a little known fact is that our clocks, humans as a species, our clock is not 24 hours. It's actually 24 and a quarter hours. And the reason why we reset every day is because light is such a big influence that even on an overcast day, getting that light exposure tells your brain, oh, get back on the 24 hour cycle and ignore that extra quarter hour. So when individuals are blind, their, um, their clock keeps delaying by a quarter hour every day compared to the rest of society, the sighted society. And um, there are ways that you can uh, and some medicines even now where you uh, blind individuals can help re try to reset on a day-to-day -day basis. But if it's working for you and, and you have the flexibility to be able to work in the middle of the night, that's fine. That's really as long as you're getting your seven or eight hours of sleep, yeah. it's okay. So, so speaking of seven or eight hours of sleep, for those of us who, um, you know, I'm, I'm a sometime insomniac, you know, mm -hmm. full disclosure, mm -hmm. if you're lying there in your bed and you're staring at the ceiling, obviously it's so frustrating to chase sleep. Do you have any tips for having sleep chase us? I mean, when we're just lying there waiting for it to happen. <laughs> yeah. So I would say, first of all, um, Insomnia is very prominent um, and very common. And um, uh, at any one time, something like 24 or 25 million Americans will be suffering with insomnia. So number one, know that it's normal. And also know that upwards of almost 90% of the time, if you do nothing, if you get up when you um, knowing, okay, I got less sleep today than I, than I wanted to, but I'll just get up and do stuff, after at most two weeks, the pattern will go away and you will reset yourself. Wow. Um, yeah. So just um, get up. <laughs> yeah. So the recommendation is if you're lying there feeling frustrated, you can actually set off a pattern where it becomes permanent because now you're giving your brain the signal. It's okay to be in bed and not be sleeping. So the recommendation is um, no more than 15, maybe depending on how severe it is, 30 minutes in the bed awake, not sleeping. You can try to do some things to turn your mind off if you feel fully awake. So that's where 
um, meditation, mm -hmm. deep breathing exercises. Sizes. There's wonderful apps out there, although I don't want people on their phone. You can sort of keep it dim and uh, listen to something that talks you through a guided meditation, progressive muscle relaxation, things to dial down the uh, the arousal mechanism during during the night when you're awake. But if it's not working, get out of bed, go in another room. I love and do it. something that's minimal and not distracted and know, OK, tonight, last night was bad, but tomorrow or the next night will probably be OK. And I want to jam one question in there. We have less than a minute left and about a minute or so left in this segment. Cassandra asked, does do those blue light filter glasses help with the blue light issue from screens? Does that help? Yes, yes. it does. They do. And so if you have to be on them and then go to sleep, um, get, you know, getting a good quality pair, but you, cause you can see the range, but none of them are really expensive. And, um, that is better than nothing. It doesn't get away from, you know, checking your email at night and getting that annoying email from your work colleague or watching a scary movie on TV that then you won't be able to fall asleep. But certainly if you have to be on a screen for some reason yep. and you like watching some relaxing TV, that's okay. Good to know. All right. And we're going to leave it there. That is Dr. Eileen Rosen, sleep medicine doctor and associate professor at the Perlman School of Medicine. Eileen, so great to have you here on Studio Two. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Take care. Up next, from early birds and night owls to all kinds of animals at the Philly Zoo. Stay with us. This is Studio Two. Welcome back. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Mary Cummings Jordan. The Philadelphia Zoo has a new president and CEO, Joelle Mogerman. She comes to us from the St. Louis Zoo and just started last week. Mogerman is also the first woman and first African-American to run the country's first zoo. A lot of firsts there. And the Philadelphia Zoo is 164 years old. We asked her to drop by and tell us about how she got into zoo work, about the animals, and about her vision for Philadelphia Zoo. Joelle Mogerman, welcome to Studio 2. Excited to have you here today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're having a little bit of a technical difficulty here. Are you getting a behind-the-scenes uh, look or listen, everybody, as to how we get a guest uh, situated? You know what? Um, how about you come sit over here? Just wheel your chair over here. We'll share a mic. Let's do that. So, Joelle, we're just wheel on over. Look, this is how we do. City of sisterly love here. We are all good. Yep. Come on over here. Have a chat. So, um we we wanted to talk about community as mary was asking yeah. you yeah. i was reading that this is very important to you as you as you look to your vision for the philadelphia zoo you want to shape your vision um during your time as president and ceo so in which ways do you envision getting the community involved in the vision yeah so to me that's really important i am just the current steward of the philadelphia zoo for the time that i am here and um the community is really important to look at our mission and tell us what our mission means to the community. Um, as a zoo and aquarium professional and the talented team at the Philadelphia Zoo means one thing to us, but it may mean something radically different to you guys. And I want to hear and understand what that means. And then as we think about what um, the Philadelphia Zoo can do and be to be the model mm -hmm. for an urban zoo moving forward, I want the input on some of those ideas that get generated. What do you like? What animals do you like? What do you want to see? 
Um, how do you want to feel when you come to the zoo? And uh, what impact can we make in terms of our conservation mission and, and having a positive impact and changing human behavior on behalf of, of wildlife and the places that they live? So you've been in zoo leadership for quite some time. Um, and I got to ask you, what attracted you to this job in Philadelphia? What made you want to come here? Of oh, all places? that's yeah. Um, Philadelphia. Philadelphia made me want to come here. I am a city girl. I'm a born and raised uh, on the south side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So Philadelphia was a big city, which was attractive. And um, in the interview process and looking at the, the job description, I saw an organization who was interested in, in as the nation's oldest zoo, being the zoo of the future. And that was really appealing. And it had the board behind that idea and that notion. And it sounds like the community in Philadelphia is behind that notion. It seems like it's a pretty exciting time for Philadelphia. That's good stuff. Yeah. So, were you always an animal lover? Were you the type of kids who yeah. kid who was always in, bringing in critters Chicago home to the too, family? Yeah. Too. No, my parents yeah. did not allow bringing home critters, um, <laughs> so that was not an option. But I always did have this love for animals. Um, and by the time I came along, my parents said I could have a dog and some fish, which I did. Um, but um, just always pursued that love in high school and in college. They never got in the way of my academic pursuits. Um, and just just wanted to figure out how I can um, help animals in whatever way possible. And I discovered early on that field research was not going to be for me because mm -hmm. I was a city girl who needed a regular restroom. Um, yeah. And that, that <laughs> led me to zoos and the power that uh, zoos and aquariums can have in, in the lives of particularly um city kids. Yeah, and I grew up in the city, Washington, D.C., where the zoo is free, yes, by the yes, way. Yes, uh, And that was something my mom could afford, you know, yep. take a bunch of kids mm -hmm. to the zoo, and it was a big thing for us. I got to ask you, uh, first uh, black uh, zoo president, first woman to do this job as well, um, how did your identity sort of like tie in to the work that you do and all your your thoughts and, and processes as far as animal conservation and just bringing it to urban communities like this. Um, I have always, um, I as you well, you all see, I'm an African American woman, um, and so that allows me to wear a lot of different lenses and um, different lenses than you traditionally find in STEM and you traditionally find in conservation. Um, and so that those lenses lead to some really creativity, some real creative ideas when it comes to the education programs. That's how I started in this field is through education. It wasn't on the animal side um, in terms of how do you make programs, concepts, ideas relevant to the communities that you're working in. Um, and so being of those communities, being a city kid, I had that lived experience that I could bring to those programs, which made them sustainable and engaging long term. And I think as I have um, moved up in different roles and different organizations, really being authentic about who I am um, and being authentic about the lived experiences and asking questions just to make sure my colleagues understand that there are multiple perspectives and multiple ideas out there that they themselves may not see. 
and 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 what that means. What does culture mean? We all live around animals. We all have a cultural relationship with animals. And when you bring that to the fore, you get to different sorts of solutions to solve our conservation problems. It is uh, what is your impression of the affordability of the Philadelphia Zoo to children in underserved communities? Cherry mentioned that the Washington Zoo mm-hmm. is free. Yeah, yeah. There are very few free zoos in the country nowadays, um, but certainly there are really interesting ways. Uh, the Philadelphia Zoo, of course, has an admission fee. There are some really creative ways that I think we can explore to make sure um, that the accessibility to school children or families who need that access is there. Um, And the zoo has already started doing that work. They have a community membership for the nearest communities Mm -hmm. so that they can come They get the membership for free and they can bring their families. The research tells us when you come to the zoo as a family, you will come back again when those kids are adults and you create that cycle. So the Philadelphia Zoo is already doing and started some of that great work. And as the CEO, I hope to build on that that work. You talked about uh, having the zoo of the future kind of like that and it made Philly uh, very attractive to you. What are some of the biggest challenges you see, but also biggest opportunities when you um, look at what vision you have yeah. for, for the future, yeah. Well, I'm still again that vision. I want I want more input into that vision. I want to see the zoo mm-hmm. the way other people see it. Um, but I think some of the biggest opportunities are what do we do with our 42 acres, and how do we um, provide the flavor of the rich history of the Philadelphia Zoo, but bring it forward in terms of its campus and its facilities and its exhibits. Um, And that may be a little bit of tension between a lot of the historic buildings that we have on on campus, but I'm pretty sure we'll we'll get there. Habitats have changed for the better across the country in zoos. I mean, this is great. I think it's the Zoo 360 walkway, (laughs) which is pretty awesome. Um, So do you envision any, do you envision any different changing or improvements in in habitats at the Philadelphia Zoo? Oh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure we will. We um, eventually, probably in the next couple of years, we'll go through both the strategic planning and master planning process to really look at the campus and figure out, um, Zoo 360 was innovative in our field. It pushed our field forward. And we want to figure out what are those other things that can push our field forward, um, in terms of our animal care and our guest engagement. So yeah, we'll be undertaking those that process, but that, that Zoo 360 is amazing and has been replicated throughout the country. Um, yeah, we only have about three more, two minutes uh-huh. left in our interview, but I got to ask you about this whole, you know, dynamic. It's like a tension because the public wants to see animals, mm-hmm. yet they're being held in captivity. What are your thoughts about this this tension that just exists when mm-hmm. you're talking about taking animals out of wildlife and put there? What are your thoughts on that? Well, we aren't taking animals from the wild anymore. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that's, that, I mean, that they're was in not, the past. They're in captivity. Right. Well, they're in human care, absolutely. Um, and But I think ultimately we want the same thing. We want animals to exist in their native habitat and in the wild, right? And zoos, today's zoos are working to do that. And what they're doing is leveraging the animals in their human care, in our human care, to connect with guests, to get guests to think differently and take positive action on behalf of animals um, and wild places throughout the world, not only in this country, but throughout the world. And so I think we need to tell our conservation work 
stories better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been really great that um, zoos and aquariums, we learned a lot from having animals in our care, and some of that can be applied to wild and field conservations. But really, our superpower is the ability to connect with the millions of guests every year. Uh, and, okay. one, uh, and we only have a couple of yeah. but I got to ask you this. One of our, call, our folks said, what is your favorite animal? <laughs> at the zoo. Do you have one? I, I do. I do. Um, uh, I My favorite, so I have two favorite animals. Uh, one is a cheetah, always since a little kid. Always been a cheetah. Um, and then when I worked at an aquarium, um, octopus are my favorite mm. aquatic animal. They're supposed to be really intelligent. If you ever get to meet an octopus, I would strongly <laughs> encourage it. I would strongly encourage it. It It, it shows you how amazing the animal kingdom really is. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to say thank you, Joelle Mogerman, new president and CEO of the Philadelphia Zoo. Thank you for being on Studio 2. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Best of luck. Thank you. And that is it for our show. Thank you so much for joining us, Mary. Thanks. It was fun. It was lots of fun. And our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Besser, and Andreas Copes. Tina Kalake is our engineer from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Mary Cummings-Jordan. Remember to follow updates on today's election on WHYY.org.